Dr. Dale on Quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordian Sons Outfitters. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's episode of Dr. Dale on Quail. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. Hunting quail for the first time some 75 years ago is quite the accomplishment. Dr. Dale's special guest today did that and much more in a lifetime of wildlife accomplishments. He's Horace Gore. You may know Horace for his work as a wildlife biologist for the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department, as a state big game program leader, and as a publication editor. Enjoy the conversation as we go to Dr. Dale now with his special guest. Good morning, Gary. It's great to be with y'all here in the uh, heat of the summer. And boy, we're going through it here in San Angelo. We're recording on June 20th, and uh, we've had a week 100-degree weather, and uh, the next foreseeable forecast shows more 100-degree weather. So we're hoping that ends before we get to the real hot months of July and August. So keep us in your thoughts and prayers on that. Today's guest, I know you're really going to enjoy. I've been wanting to, I've been wanting to interview him for some time because I love visiting with some of the, I won't say the old timers, I'll say some of the vintage crew of quail hunters, and we got one for you today. I've always been a student of history, and I always remember when I was in seventh grade in Hollis High School, the lieutenant governor of Oklahoma. George Nye came down and gave an assembly for us one day, and he he used a quote there that I've always kept in my bank of quotations, and that is, we study the past and apply it to the present that we may affect the future. So I always enjoy visiting with those that um, have have spent a lot of time and effort uh, in the field of quail management before and just always enjoy going back and reflecting and reminiscing with them. And sometimes I have lamentations of missing some of those people. Uh, I, I really feel badly. I, we, we lost A.V. Jones, one of our directors, in uh, during the COVID situation, and I did not get a chance to to record A.V.'s thoughts. And, and then personally, a guy that was kind of my mentor in quail management was a guy named Timmy McGee. And Timmy was quite the playboy, and uh, but quite the quail hunter too. And he used to carry me and Coondog on some quail hunts and uh, hats off to him. He passed away three or four years ago. But sometimes you hit it just right. Um, y'all may remember about three or four months ago, we uh, interviewed, did a podcast with gentleman by the name of Joe Don Brooks out of Paducah and Mr. Brooks passed away about six weeks ago. So, uh, we just happened to catch that one just right. And I'm I'm thankful for that and thankful that he will live on digitally, uh, as far as our reflections of quail management. So our guest today is Horace Gore and, uh, one of the most colorful characters you'll meet in Texas wildlife management circles. He had a long career with TPW that, uh, he, he will, uh, expound upon in just a second and then for the last 20 years or so with the texas trophy hunters magazine and before i even get started horace i want to thank you for uh and trophy hunters magazine for uh, being a being an outlet for some of our texas brigades uh, young writers y'all have published articles by them in the past and we appreciate the ink on that if you're my age i'm 68 just turned 68 started quail hunting in about 67 Maybe a little earlier than that, riding in the lap of my daddy's, uh, riding in my daddy's lap as we cruised down them county roads south of Hollis there, but it wasn't really quail hunting 
uh, like most people would think about it. But the 60s and 70s were some great decades for quail hunting. And uh, our guest today, Horace, uh, was alive and kicking and doing a lot of quail hunting back then. So we hope to tap into that. So Horace, welcome aboard. We're glad to have you here on the Dr. Dale on Quail podcast. Horace, whenever I think of you, I think of words like feisty and spry, maybe a good storyteller. So we're looking forward to all those traits. But uh, I know you're I know you're not a uh, spring chicken. So tell us how old you are, how many years you've been hunting quail, and how'd you get started? Well, of course, I'll be 90 in October. And I'm 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 doing quite well, I guess, for 90 years old. But I, I can't. I was born in Arkansas, and I've spent five years living with my grandmother up in the hills and i i came to Bowie county texas hooks texas when i was 12 years old and i um i had a paper out there in hooks and when i was 13 and i used to throw the paper to mr uh, jim tiller and jim taught me how to squirrel hunt with a squirrel dog and then that that squirrel hunting led me into dove hunting and led me into quail hunting uh, when i was about 15 years old a friend of mine a lady friend of mine named johnny smith gave me a about a two-year-old black and white setter and i didn't have a shotgun so i traded a swin an old swin bicycle to a friend of mine in, in Hooks there for a 16-gauge Winchester pump shotgun. And and with a with a friend of mine who had a pointer bird dog, that's how I got into quail hunting when I was 15 years old in Bowie County. Hooks, Texas. Now, I don't know exactly where Hooks is, but as an Okie, and if you follow Oklahoma football, uh, you you know what where Hooks is because that's where Billy Sims, the Heisman Trophy winner, was from. I'm gonna say in the mid to late seventies. Is that correct? Yes. When I went to high school, by the way, uh, I played on the first football team that Hooks ever had, which was probably not probably 1949. And uh, we 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 were a basketball um, powerhouse for our for our school size. And never had had a football team. Well, anyway, we, we, uh, I, I, I played football and took my helmet off and kept my uniform on and played in the band at the half. And we had a big time at Hooks, Texas. Betty <laughs> Sims would have been in another school when I was at Hooks, but when when Betty got to be high school age, he he went to Hooks, was a star in our little two A school, and of course you know he went on to Oklahoma. And one Well, we appreciate all the good football players that uh, <laughs> Texas sends to Oklahoma and Oklahoma State both. And uh, as, as we both know, there's a lot of those Texas players wind up up there being Okies for four years. So we appreciate that. Um, tell us more about that center, Corky. Corky was, um, as I said, he was about two years old. He really wasn't. He he would point quail when I got him, but he really didn't know what to do. And he just as soon point a rabbit and chase it. So we got our heads together. And of course, he and I got to um, got to working together. I didn't know anything about quail hunting either. So together, over about a five or, 
five or six year period there, Corky got to be a pretty good bird dog. And my, my friend Jerry Barra had an excellent pointer bird dog that his uncle had bought him when he was, he was a year older than I was. I'm, Jerry was about 16, I was about 15. And of course we, we would leave home at, on Saturday on the weekends, we'd leave home at eight o'clock in the morning with a biscuit and a sausage in our pockets and, and come back home at sundown. I mean, we hunted all day. Yeah, I can remember those days in my own career too. Like, you, know, <laughs> you were mad at quail back then kind of thing. And uh, obviously as we get older, we lose some of that uh, anger, if you will, and more appreciation for quail. But yeah, most of us have been there and, and we appreciate your, your zeal that you had uh, when you're 15, 16 years old. Well, how did you, uh, moving on from Hooks, Texas, uh, how'd you get into college and where'd you go? Well, I, I was in Hooks. Uh, got out of high school. I was at Hooks. And when I got about 21 years old, just, just doing odd jobs, I'd get a, you know, we had a lot of contract jobs uh, with, the, with the military there at Red River Arsenal. And I would get a good job, but it would be a contract job. And when the contract was over, you know, they, I, they let me go. So when I was about 21, I, I, I didn't have a good job. And, I, and I was 1A, meaning they could draft me any day for the Korean War. So I just volunteered for the Army. And I went to Fort, uh, I went to El Paso, Fort Bliss. And then I went on to Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, up in the Oak Hills of Missouri. And then I went to Fort Hood and spent a year and a half or so at Fort Hood. And while I was at Fort Hood, I learned from my colleagues there in headquarters uh, that that I should that I could get the GI Bill. Senator Ralph Yarber had uh, made made it possible for Texans to get the, a veteran to get the GI Bill about I don't know 36 or 48 months of of school, and so that's how I ended up in Texarkana Junior College, and I ended up at Texas A&M. Well, and tell us about uh, tell us about your experience there at Texas A&M. I know there were a lot of, or well, there were several parks and wildlife biologists, kind of your vintage that uh, were Aggies at time. Uh, tell it, tell us about some of those. What your experiences were at Texas A&M? Well, when I was in Texas A&M, from that from the spring of '58 to the summer of June '60. Uh, Nearly every, I hate to say it this way, but nearly every biologist that ended up at Texas Game and Fish Commission, which turned turned into Parks and Wildlife, nearly every wildlife biologist there was from Texas A&M. There was one or, one or two from Oklahoma State, one or two from Utah, uh, maybe one from Utah. But anyway, uh, I, back then, a&M was the best school in the state for wildlife biologists. And so I ended up with Ted Clark and Charlie Winkler and, and um, oh, I get the number, uh, Dennis Brown, a number of them. And uh, that's, uh, I guess that's it. On the, well, on okay. And so you graduated with a degree in wildlife management from Texas A&M and then... Uh, yeah. How'd you wind up with the Game and Fish Commission? Well, when I when I got ready to graduate, I had a chance for two jobs. 
one was a federal job on an island off of the coast of Louisiana, and the other one was with the Possum Kingdom Regulatory District under Clyde Holt out of Decatur. And Clyde was about to embark on a five-year quail study. So you can imagine which one I chose when I left A&M. Absolutely. And, and I recognize that name, Clyde Holt. I remember some of the early papers that uh, fact sheets and so forth that came out of Texas Parks and Wildlife re regarding Bob White's and yours and Clyde's name were on those. Well, we, we, we spent about five years doing what, considering what you do today, Dale, we were very primary. We were very, we, we kind of started the game with our rough um, research, which I guess you'd call it research on quail food habits, uh, population turnover, uh, uh, quail covey uh, utilization, you know how many what, what kind of habitat and and we did a lot of uh, we weighed a lot of quail over that five-year period we probably weighed um 2,000 quail and probably and collected their craws for food habits and then we we um we weighed i'm trying to think of all those figures that we have we weighed about um we weighed about 2,000 and with crawlers, and we studied the food habits of about 1,200 quail, every seed that was in their crawl. Well, and, I you, know, Dale, you know, Dale, I don't care what, what, what month of the year it is, we found some kind of insect in every quail crawl we opened. Yeah, we, we call insects MREs, meals ready to eat, and they'll take them when <laughs> we, we say that quail will take an MRE whenever they are available. Uh, we're going yeah. to get more into the study and some relationships with Clyde Holt here in just a minute, Horace, but I want you to go back to when the 14, 15 years old and you were carrying that Model 12. Do you have any cubby rises that just stick out there and indelible to you? I mean, you could you could step back into that scene right now and and relive it. Are, are there any cubby rises you remember like that? Just That's one. Describe only one. Them. Only one. And I was hunting with my my uh, brother-in-law, uh, Felix. Felix, they called him Bud. Bud Woodley. We were hunting in the Red River County. We'd gone up. Uh, uh, kind of where some of their old home folks had lived. And we, Corky was, uh, Bud had a good, a real nice female setter, and I had Corky, and they pointed on a, on a fence row in Red River County. And we walked up to them. I was shooting my pump, Model 12. Bud was shooting a Model 20 Shares Roebuck high standard pump shotgun that weighed about five, about eight pounds or nine. Anyway, a covey got up, about, about 12 birds got up, and they all tried to go through a, a, a little five-foot uh, hole between the, the trees. It was just a little, a little clear space there, and the whole covey went right into that clear space. Well, big shot, and I shot, and quail fell like rain. And the dogs brought us seven quail. We killed half of the cubbies. With I mean, two they shots. were all they were they were all right right together when they went through that little hole 
and we just shot and just killed half of them. Huh. That's that's the only cubby ride I really remember. Well, yeah, that's that sounds that's, like a memorable one indeed. Uh, well, it is. <laughs> So, indeed, that's an indelible cubby rise. Uh, tell us about some of your other favorite hunting stories with your buddy Jerry back during your high school years. Well, as I said, Jerry, Jerry and I were 15 and 16, and we both had pretty good bird dogs. And Jerry, Jerry was a crack shot with his shotgun on quail. It was always my problem trying to get a single bird before Jerry got it because he was good. And, uh, but Jerry and I would, his mother, Nita, would uh, send us off in the morning with a, with, like I said, with a biscuit and a piece of sausage, and we'd stay out all day, and we'd, our, uh, our usual Saturday hunt was about eight quail and about four woodcocks. We had, a, we had woodcock on the creeks and uh, in Bowie County, and so that was, generally speaking, that would be a good quail day for us. And, so this uh, was happening in about 1947 or so? Oh, this was in 48. 47, 48. 48, 40, Jerry and I hunted together 48. Well, actually, we did hunt together some in 47. 48, 49, and 50. Uh, Jerry was ahead of me in high school, and he, he graduated from high school and went to the Navy and kind of left me hanging <laughs> on a limb. <laughs> Well, I find it incredible your recall of those, and, and, and we can tell on this end of the conversation how vivid those memories are to you, and so we appreciate you sharing those with us. What year was that when you were, uh, say, a sophomore in high school, when you when you started quail hunting? How What year was that? Was I, I, that, was, that was 1947, and 48 or 47. I was 15 years old. Well, now I remember reading about, uh, again, one of the legends in Parks and Wildlife and Quail Management, A.S. Jackson, and he wrote some publications about the quail eruption of 1946, uh, at least in the Rolling Plains. Uh, so did, did y'all see those kinds of quail numbers over there where you were at there in Bowie County? He, oh, no, no, not in Bowie County. Bowie County was, uh, was the kind of quail hunting where, you know, Jerry and I were young and, and uh, we would leave, we'd go quail hunting at 8 o'clock in the morning and, and get through at sundown. And uh, we'd, our, our, our usual bad limit in a day would be about eight quail and about three or four woodcock. So all day long. <laughs> well, that was enough to keep your appetite kind of whetted, I guess, for better days. Oh, we, we, we were young and we enjoyed every day. We'd, we'd take a biscuit and a piece of sausage with us, you know, just a, we call it Jimmy Dean sausage nowadays, but we just take a biscuit and sausage and hunt all day long, kill about eight quail, three or four woodcock, and enjoyed it. His pointer, Jerry's pointer, was an absolute outstanding dog. Now, my setter was a good dog when, when Mike wasn't around, you know, Mike was Jerry's dog. When Mike wasn't there, uh, of course, he looked pretty good. But he didn't look too good when Mike was around. <laughs> yeah. You've had dogs like that. Oh, well, I like to think I've had the one that looked better when the competition was there. But I know there are some dogs. <laughs> yeah, there's always one a little bit better than you kind of thing. Of, uh, of course. 
Horace, would, who would you list as your mentor? Would it be this friend, Jerry of yours? Oh, I got to go back to you. Uh, my mentor in hunting, just hunting, was Jim Tiller. He was about 60 or six, about 65 years old when I first met him. I had a paper out and I threw his paper, the Texarkana Gazette, and I'd talk with him. And, and when I was, uh, when I was about 13, he said, I would Let's go, let's go squirrel hunting. And I went with him and his little fast dogs. And I turned the squirrel. You know what a turning the squirrel means. All right. I turned the squirrels for him and he rolled them out with an old 12 gauge double barrel shotgun. Hey, he was too, his eyes were getting bad. He used to, said he used to use 22, but he, he was using a 12 gauge shotgun. And he taught me how to hunt. I mean, literally. And then when I started quail hunting, of course, I hunted with Jerry, Jerry Barrow, there when we were young kids. But I didn't know, you know, you've heard it said that you thought you were until you were with somebody that was. I thought I was a quail hunter until I met Clyde Holt. <laughs> Clyde Holt was a quail hunter supreme, you know. <laughs> and, and tell us for our listeners' sake, uh, Clyde Holt was uh, was with Parks and Wildlife, so he was one of your bosses at the time. Is that correct? He was he he was my supervisor out of the Possum Kingdom Regulatory District. At, Clyde lived in Decatur, and I, of course, I was living in Mineral Wells at the time, and I eventually moved to Brownwood, and I was still under his supervision. But Clyde had three, had really two. He had two of the best female pointer bird dogs that you will ever see in your life. Their names were June and Harriet. And I, one of my first quail hunts with Clyde was the, the bag limit was 12 each, and we killed 24 quail in about an hour and a half. And Clyde said, Take your belt off. And I took my belt off, and I said, Why? And he said, I'm going to call. He and Harriet in, and we got to we got to get them back to the truck. And if we don't take them back on our belts, they'll be pointing quail all the way back. So, so that was one of my first quail hunts with Clyde Holt. Well, we're going to get into more about your relationship with Clyde here in just a minute because I know that was a big part of your early career. Um, you mentioned some of your dogs already, and, and let me back up for the sake of our listeners. Uh, when I contacted. Horace about a month ago uh, and told him I'd be sending him a list of some talking points. Well, he sent me back what it turns out is going to be a, a chapter in a book that you're working on. So real briefly, tell us tell us about uh, what your book's going to be about and what we, what we can expect from that, Horace. Well, uh, I've been working on a book about two years. And the title of it would be Spring Towns to the Coconuts. And what that means is I was born in a Stringtown communities in Sevier County, Arkansas, and I ended up in my working days living on a ranch called the Coconut Ranch in Gonzales County. But it, it just it starts off from the day I was born until well, really uh, until last year. 
<laughs> well, if all of it's as colorful as that chapter you sent me called the quintessential quail hunter, I, I look forward to reading it because again, I've known you for probably 30 years, but, uh, and I know you've got a lot of stories and, and like I said, I, I always love to, to sit back and, uh, and, and reflect and reminisce about those good old days and some of the, and especially some of the colorful characters that, you know, and maybe some of them that I crossed paths with as well during my career. Um, what about some of your favorite covey right? Well, wait a minute. Before you were talking about your dogs, and I'm gonna read this list, horse. I mean, you you gave. Yeah. A pretty, I, I like to start off when I got an award not too long ago down at Corpus Christi, and the first things that I thanked was my list of bird dogs. Here's here's horses: Corky and Mike, Jack, Corky, Molly, Lucy Bell, Ruff, Zeke, Sue, Patches, and Chief. And so, tell me about Jack now, because you and I share some common blood on this one. Uh, I, I got out of A&M and about a year after I got out of A&M and I was living in mineral wells and then I moved, I moved Brownwood and for some unknown reason, I needed to go back to Hooks in Bullitt County. So I went up there and while I was there, I talked to some of my friends. I said, you know, I don't have any bird dogs and I've got to have a bird dog. I need a good dog. And they said, well, Mr. Pearson's got one he wants to sell. So I went over and talked to Mr. Pearson. He was a janitor at the at the Hooks High School. And so Mr. Pearson said, yeah, I've got a little old dog called Jack here in the yard. And I said, well, show him to me. He brought Jack out and Jack was a little dog, weighed about, he might have weighed 30 pounds, but I doubt it. And he was black and white speckled and looked kind of like a pointer, but he, but he didn't look like a pointer. And Mr. Pearson said, well, he's a, He's a drop. He's a cross between Robert Green's English setter called Smokey and and, a, and an English porter. And I said, well, have you hunted him any? <laughs> Mr. Pearson said, he's never been out of my backyard. And I said, well, what makes you think he's going to make a good bird dog? He said, well, let me show you. And he, he, he put a wash up down on the ground. And he said, Jack, get in that tub. Well, Jack just jumped over and got in the tub and laid down. And he said, now let me show you something else. And he said, Jack, sit. And Jack sat. And Mr. Mr. Pearson walked around the house and put an egg in the flower bed. He, he, he said, Jack, get out of that tub and go, get, go find that egg for me. Well, Jack went around the house. And after a while, he brought the egg back and put it in Mr. Pearson's hands. And I said, boy, uh, how much you want for that dog? And he said, well, he's never seen a quail in his life but I'll sell him to you for $60. And I said, on the credit? He said, yeah, if he makes a good dog, send me a check for $60. And that's how I got Jack. And he ended up, now I hunted him a lot. You got, you understand, the more you hunt a dog, the better they are. But Jack was the best bird dog I ever had in all well, my life. Well, um, I, I take some, I take some brow beating by, from some of the people that we run with as far as their purebred dogs and nothing against them. But, uh, yeah, I've, I've raised what I call betters for the last 32 years. And now I call them better by design, uh, uh, setter and, uh, setter and Brittany crosses. So anyway, you, we you, all, know, you know, if I was, if I was a younger man, I would have to have one of your crosses because I think that would be a good dog. They've been good. They've been good to me better than I deserve. I tell people. Uh, I also enjoyed your, your notes uh, in that chapter. You sent me horse about your first shotgun. So tell us about the shotguns that you've had. 
Well, my first shotgun was a 1912 Winchester 16 gauge pump. And I traded an old broke down swing bicycle part from a friend of mine that hooks and it was a cylinder bore. I didn't know anything about chokes back in those days. And the, the shotgun was a factory cylinder bore. Well, I, you know how that goes. I, I could shoot quail with it and do pretty good. But I couldn't shoot squirrels or ducks or anything else with it. So I read in the Outdoor Live magazine about polychokes that you could put on a gun and just screw them down to whatever, whatever choke you wanted. So I sent the gun off to Oklahoma City to Andy Anderson and got a $16 polychoke put on it and kept the gun for three more, about three more years. But that, that was my first shotgun, Dale. And again, if you've, if you've been around during the 60s, you know, there were a lot of guns that had polychokes or selected chokes on them back in. And my first shotgun that I carried was a Mossberg bolt action with a polychoke on the end of it. So, yeah, we, we again, we share some common blood, like a lot of people did that were raised during that, that time. Dale, I've owned those Mossberg bolt action shotguns with a clip, with a clip. Right, two-shot <laughs> clip. Well, we've come a long way since then. <laughs> well, we, we have, but we've kind of gone back to them. You know, I'm sure you... You know, a lot of people had the Browning Auto 5s. I personally never had one or Remington 1100 or Remington 870, something like that. But the older you get, the more you tend to go back, get away from those uh, repeating firearms and go back to a, a side-by-side or an over-and-under shotgun kind of thing. So it goes uh, uh, Dale, my, my, one of my favorite guns, of course, I've, I've, I've shot a everything from Winchester 21 double to over flying over and unders. And I liked them all, but my, my go-to quail gun was a model 12 skeet gun that I got from Leo Bradshaw here in Waco in 1966. And I've, I've, i shot a lot of quail with that gun. Well, let's talk, let's, quail talk, pump. let's talk about some of those quail hunts. Uh, where were the hot spots? In, in your hunting career, let's let's say the late fifties, early sixties, uh, where were the hot spots then, um, horse? Where, where were you go to oh, places? There were no hot spots until I went to A and M, and then I went to work for Clyde Holt. But but the hot spot when I worked, you know, that five or six seven years with Clyde was that area. As I've told you several times, that area north of Cisco to the Red River and from, say, Fort Worth or Breckenridge or somewhere out there, out to Sweetwater. And I hunted a lot in that big area. Um, the Clear Fork of the, I mean, the, the, the watershed of the Clear Fork of the Brazos in Albany, that's north of Albany and Shackleford and Throckmorton counties are probably the best quail hunting I've ever done in my life. Now, I had another hot spot after I moved to Austin. Believe it or not, it was a little community area out east of Lockhart, and the little community was named Dale, D-A-L-E. And it was a lot of small owners, owners, and they didn't mind you hunting. They didn't, they didn't, 
they didn't and i hunted out there five or six or seven years uh along an old abandoned railroad track and it was really good quail hunting well now if you were to go to cisco north to the red river <laughs> you, you probably you probably wouldn't shoot a lot of quail uh, up through that area for really and, and shackford county and again i mentioned av jones earlier av he would tell me many times that the reason they settled in Albany, Texas, his dad was an oil man and could have lived anywhere, but he said the best quail hunting anywhere was Shackley, <laughs> Texas. Uh, well, but again, yeah. they shoot more bucks than Bob White's in those counties now. So I'm just curious. You got a thought on what happened? Well, i tell you one thing. A.V. Jones was a fine American. He had some good dogs and he was a quail hunter. <laughs> um, you know, thinking back, I would say the best years of quail hunting in that North Texas area there that we're talking about was on the bigger ranches, no spraying, no insecticides, no pesticides, no herbicides. And our, our biggest quail years were the years with tall broomweed. Uh, some people call it snakeweed, and uh, that's when we had a, in other words, a, a, a small dog would, would almost be, you, you couldn't hardly see them, the broomweeds were so tall, but broomweed is excellent for quail, not only cover, but feed. That, that's what I think. You, you preaching to the choir here. Course, I, uh, Horace, I've, I know, I know, I'm, I'm Broomweed's biggest advocate, and and I have no more fond memories than when uh, my dog Susie or one of my other dogs uh, during a good Broomweed year, and all you'd see was the tip of that white tail sticking out of that. I would say it's up periscope, and they had that, birds I, right there. And you know how good the quail hunting was. Yep. Um, you know, can I tell a little story? Absolutely. Uh, Morris Stalkup was the game warden chief out of Wichita Falls. And uh, we all met on the Lambshead Ranch, about five or six of us, met on the Lambshead Ranch, what Matthew in. And uh, it was 52,000 acres, enough, enough country to hunt on, you know. And so we stayed at the camp house down on the river. And one morning we all left, and, and Morris Stalkup was a really good quail shot. And I, I didn't really like Morris that much because he was a kind of, a little bit of a smart addict. But anyway, but I did like to hunt with him. And so he and I went out hunting. We left the truck. I turned Jack. I had Jack. And he had a couple, a little female porter. And we turned them loose. And while we were getting out of the truck, they were on point. Both of them. Well, to, to, to shorten the story, we didn't get out of sight of the truck, probably 150 yards from the truck, and we had 24 quail in the bags. Yep. And Morris uh, Stalkup had killed 12 with 12 shots, and I was shooting a 28-gauge double barrel, and on my last quail, I crippled the bird, and the dogs had to find it and bring it to us, but we basically shot 24 times, and killed 24 quail, and that was when the broomweed was high and the quail were thick. 
And it sounds like the eyes were good and the reflexes were good as well. So yeah, we were we were both young. <laughs> and, and I've hunted with guys, especially back then. And I'll I'll give a guy Jimmy Cleveland shot a little twenty gauge side by side, and you had to be quicker than a cat if you were going to get a bird on the ride before Jimmy got it. So yeah, <laughs> as as competitive as fifteen, sixteen, early early twenties are, you know, you get with some crowd like that, and and you try to you try to match wits with them now. I give one other little uh, memoir to our listeners. Don't try to do that when you're in the 60s because that 20-year-old is going <laughs> to beat you every time. <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, Horace, when I got to know you, I guess the best was when uh, we were up there with Roy Wilson at the Crooked River Ranch there and uh, up there northwest of Albany and that's where we hosted the Bob White Brigade for the first 15 years. And I got to know you a little bit with some of the other guides over there. So tell us about some of the days that that's kind of, that ranch is kind of in Jones, Haskell, Shackford and Throckmorton County right there where those counties meet. So tell us a little bit about the bird hunting then during, uh, I guess that would have been during the early eighties. Well, no, it was, it was, I, I, I retired from parks and wildlife in 93. And you know, that was in, in the summer yeah and, and and during that summer uh roy wilson who ran the crooked river called me and he said what are you going to be doing I, he said i know you got two or three pretty good bird dogs and i said yeah I'm, i've got the dogs and I'm, i don't have any plans he said well come up here and work for me and guide quail hunters and other things you can help clean out the dog pens and you can cook and you can do whatever but i need you so I went up there the, the the fall of 93. I spent the whole winter up there with Roy. And, of course, I did a, a little hunting of, of my own. You know, I had my dogs. And when I wasn't guiding other hunters, I would be out there hunting myself, maybe training, training a young dog. And those days were, were really, really fun days at Crooked River. By the way, wasn't that your, was that your first quail? Brigade? Yeah, yeah, you're, you're, your dates are right. My, I was off by 10 years. Yeah, I was 93. It was the very first battalion up there at the Crooked River. So, yeah, you're exactly I was right. there and watching you. I was watching you work. <laughs> well, we, we had 15 great years there. And, uh, again, shout out to Roy and Becky and, and all the people up there. You know, there were some other characters up there, and I'm sure you had interaction with them that, uh, folks like Alan Herman and uh, Barefoot Bob and some of those kind of guys. So, uh, be it, be I, have written, I have written stories about all of them. Yeah, Barefoot Bob, a guy that would go barefooted in the summer and and thorny thorny country. I just can't couldn't imagine. And I've got Barefoot on my list of people that I'm gonna get a podcast with them. I I often hail him <laughs> as the closest thing Texas has to Crocodile Dundee. I'll tell you what, he was something else. He was something else. And uh, I don't know, I don't know. I I was around him several several times up there, and I have I have told people about Barefoot Bob many times. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of stories there. I may have to get you in on that podcast as well, because I'm sure you've got a lot that I, I probably haven't heard. Um, <laughs> yeah, let's go. Let's turn the clock back a little bit, Horace, uh, back to your Parks and Wildlife days. Uh, and again, you were working on a big quail project at the behest of the uh, chairman of the 
Game and Fish Commission there. So take me back to that time in your life and tell us about that story. Well, Frank Wood, who, who was a wildcat oil man, made a lot of money in oil. And, of course, he had a son named Bubba Wood that was a friend of all of us. And Frank Wood approached Clyde Holt, my boss, and he said, we need to do something about quail hunting. The bud limit is, is just too short. We've got too many good quail up here, good quail hunting. And he said, I'd like for you to do a research. Now, Dale, according to your research, we were very, we were very anxious in what we were doing. But, but we, he wanted Clyde to find out how big the coveys were, how much, how much range a covey took in, it, in its daily activities, what it ate, where it slept, you know, and, and, and how long it lived. And, and how many young birds were in the kill? You know, if somebody killed 12 birds, how many of those were birds that had hatched uh, shortly there before? So anyway, we did a five-year quail study. We aged and weighed and uh, about... thousand or more birds probably a little more than three thousand and we took the crops out of the of the twelve hundred birds and check every seed in those crops to see what the quail was eating at what time of year so we thought we were doing a lot of good quail work at the time it was good enough that the parks and wildlife commission changed the bag limit to 15 birds and changed the quail season, added about another 15 days to the quail season. And that's what, of course, that's what Frank Wood wanted because he was a big quail hunter. And that, that's why, that, that's the quail work that we did back then from 1960 to 1965. And in your exploits in that book chapter, you called yourself a professional quail hunter and how how the uh, the fun of quail hunting kind of wore out a little bit when you were having to do it every day. So tell us about that. Look, Clyde, Clyde was the boss, and he said, I want you boys to, to weigh about 100 birds a week and uh, take the crops out of every bird you can. And, and of course, you know, some of, the, some of the birds were shot up a little bit, and we didn't weigh them because they, they, they didn't have a true weight. And so, uh, uh, but we had a pretty good, tough schedule. Now I had Jack, and the reason Jack was such a good dog was, was because I hunted Jack about three days a week. And during the season, you know, I probably killed 200 birds over Jack, or 150, 200 birds. And as you know, Dale, when you do that with a dog, if it's got any blood at all, you're going to make a pretty good bird dog. I, complete, I completely agree with you. Clyde gave us a pretty good chore. And and when you do that, three, when you hunt three days a week, all during the hunting season, it gets to be old. It gets to be, you don't really want to go. Uh, again, the good old days, for sure. Uh, Tell us a little bit. Or let me ask you, Horace, uh, we've mentioned several of your colleagues back then. 
Uh, were you around in A.S. Jackson's, or did you have much interactions with A.S. Jackson during those days? I was at the Lamb's Head Ranch when Watt Matthews called us all. Well, there was 15 of us there, 12 of us there. And, uh, and he had the fiddler and, the, and the, uh, the guitar player there, and, and we popped the cork, you know. And it was A.S. Jackson's retirement supper with, with all of us at the Lamb's Head. I, I never, working with A.S., I never did work with him. But I knew him, uh, oh, I knew him for a year or two before he retired, and I read I read all of his works. You know, he, he wrote quite a bit of stuff back in those days. Yeah, and, and you were you were trying to discount some of that early research y'all did, but uh, that's just what I call a, a good naturalist kind of a, uh, observations. And, and again, I take my hat off to you. I take my hat off to AS. That's what I call the before telemetry era, which was prior to about <laughs> 1995. Now, since that time, it's been after telemetry. And obviously the, the technology of radio telemetry has opened yeah. our eyes yeah. to a lot of different things. But yeah. uh, when I, when I think of, uh, you and A.S. and Val Lehman and some of you guys that were the pioneers in that. Well, again, I tip my hat to you because it wasn't that wasn't any such thing as drive around and pick up. Y'all were doing boot leather and carrying that biscuit and sausage with you all day long. Absolutely, A.S. was A.S. was a uh, what? What was the word you used a while ago? A.S. was naturalist. Uh, he was a natural. He was a naturalist. I mean, he. He could look. He he could look at a real grand turkey, and he knew what that turkey was thinking. You know what he <laughs> where he was going and what he was thinking. Same thing with all about quail. AS was a naturalist. Let me ask you one other question. Again, this goes back to a conversation that I had several times with A.V. Jones, who would comment about A.S. Jackson would walk into the Lamb's Head Ranch early in the morning, get a biscuit, and put it in his pocket and leave, and <laughs> follow quail all day long, kind of thing. But uh, also, they, they talk about 75% of the quail back in, I, I, I forget the time frame, late 50s, I'm going to say, 75% of the quail in Throckmorton County were supposedly blue quail. Can you attest to that? You mean 75% Bob Whites and 25% blue? Well, I understood it is 75% blue quail in Throckmorton County, which seemed, I know there are blue, were blue oh, there. Oh, no, 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 no. In fact, there were just a few places, a few ranches in Rockmorton County that even had any blue quail. I hunted, I hunted the lamb's head, I don't know how many times and how many years. I never saw a blue quail on the lamb's head, ever. But when you get it, when you got over into Archer County, you know, up around Maydale, uh, up toward, you know, you're going toward Wichita Falls from Stockmorton's, and you get into Archer County and you'd see blue quail. But you know what? I'm going to tell you something since you brought it up. I hunted up there for 30 years. I don't know how many quail I killed, but I killed a bunch. Never killed a blue quail up there in my life. Never saw a blue quail. I mean, I well, maybe I did see a, a covey or two of blue quail in our but I never did kill any of them. They were they were all gone, you know, running gone. Well, I mean, we I mean, didn't hunt we didn't hunt blue quail. We didn't want to hunt blue quail up there. Right. We were after Bob White's. 
And and let me ask you another thing to reflect on for us, Horace. Um, again, the '60s. Again, when, at least in southwestern Oklahoma, where I was raised, it was what my buddy Paul Melton would call subsistence ranching. Overgrazing was pretty rampant, and yet we still had quail. And some years, like basically everywhere you saw a loat bush or a plum thicket, you had a cubby of bobwhite or blue quail up there. How would you relate grazing pressure and quail abundance and so forth back during your heyday in, in the 60s and early 70s kind of thing? Well, every, after I got, after, after I left Bowie County, Bowie County, you know, was just a, it was just sharecropping type situations and, uh, and, and everywhere that there was a little piece of quail habitat, there was a covey of quail up in Bowie County when we hunted during high school. But when I went to work for Clyde Holton, I started hunting up in that big country that we talked about up north of Cisco and towards the river. Uh, all the ranchers rotated their cattle and uh, the ranches were so big. I think the fact that they didn't use any herbicide, insecticide, or any of those sides, that helped quail. And, of course, broomweed came after dry spells and then rain. Uh, a dry summer and then a rain in the winter, and the next year you had uh, broomweed that was foot and a half taller or taller. That's when we had the good quail. So I, I, I can't, my personal, I can't relate. I can't relate the way they grazed their pastures quail. I can relate drought to rainfall with quail, but not grazing. I, I just I just can't do that. Not where I hunted up there. Okay, well I often say and, and you basically set me up for the the saying drought cocks a hammer and rain pulls the trigger and we hope that's where <laughs> we're at. We hope that's where we're at right now because we had both barrels cocked and uh, May was very good to us, at least here in West Texas. Now, we're going through a pretty horrible uh, heat wave right here in late June when we're recording this, and we hope we get back out of that. And they are saying El Nino is on the way, so hopefully oh, we'll get the fall and winter rains, and uh, yeah. that'll, that'll be set to grow us two broomweed years in a row, and that's what happened I, in 86 and 87 and 2014 and 15. Uh, you know, uh, uh, of course, I was still in a when we when we had the big quail years of fifty eight and fifty nine. Tell me about that. That well, I mean I I talked to Clyde Holt, he's right in the middle of it, of of those, and he said that they would they they would when they were quail hunting, now we're talking about up around the lamb's head, up around Throckmorton and Shackford County. He said they'd be quail hunting and the dog would bring them back a quail. And they'd that fields of quail and it would it would you know like weigh 130 to 140 grams and uh, I don't know about you but I think that a quail loses 20 grams of body weight if he goes from 160 grams down to 140 he's a goner he won't last any time but anyway Clyde said that the dogs would bring them quail you know when they were hunting and then they would they would flush coveys and all the birds wouldn't fly because they couldn't fly. They were really, 
quail got really poor in 58 because they didn't have enough food to feed all the quail that were there. Mm. And that, that was one of the things I remember about the, about the, the big quail eruption of 58. They, a lot of, a lot of uh, natural loss of quail. Well, I certainly wish we could turn back those times, number one, to, to get on the front end of those, uh, uh, of those cycles like that and, and enjoy that quail hunting, but then also what terminates them. Like in 2017, our birds just 15, 16 were glory years, and 17 just dropped off to almost nothing. <laughs> it's had a hard time bouncing back. Horace, do, getting... you, uh, do you remember 69? Where were you in 69? 69, I was 14 years old, so I'm sure Coondog oh, and I were driving the county roads, but I don't well, remember I don't remember that much. Oh, yeah, y'all were shooting birds off the county roads. Uh, in 69, I was working with Clyde on the, on the Possum Kingdom project, and we hunted the lamb's head. That 69, is the, that's when Mark talked and I killed 24 quail in about 30 or 40 minutes and never left the side of the pickup. 69 was my high year in my quail hunting. I hear my dad talking about it. Uh, yeah, but that was a little bit before my time. But I forget that you guys are so young. <laughs> well, <laughs> and we appreciate your recall uh, on these because it's, I always tell people that I could take, I could remember every cubby rise that Susie had ever pointed and uh, with GPS precision. And it sounds like you could do the same thing with Jack and some of your dogs. And I, I appreciate well, your good memory on that, Rico. Well, there were good years. You know, I don't, I, I'm not sure that, uh, that we have generations coming along right now that are going to be quail hunters like you and I were. No, and it's a it's a pitiful time to uh, try to recruit quail hunters because uh, again, the number one, they're kind of spoiled. Um, well, I'm I'm editorializing now, but you know we've, <laughs> we we've made we've made deer hunting so easy for them, kind of thing that uh, you tell them we're going to get out and walk two or three miles here, and it loses its luster pretty quick. So, yeah, we we got to have some better years for sure. That, that leads me, uh, Horace. We're, we're kind of beginning our final descent here. And you've talked a lot about or what I uh, interpret as the quail culture within TPW during your career. Seems seems like a lot of you hunted quail, or at least you tell me if I'm wrong. But I guess my point is, how many how many of your colleagues had bird dogs back during the 60s? Well, the, the people who worked in quail country, and we're talking about North, the, you know, we're talking about that area we've already talked about, north of Cisco and out to Sweetwater. And, and, then, and then the people down in South Texas, uh, around Catula and down in there, uh, they were the ones in, uh, they were the parks and wildlife people who actually quail hunted when I was with parks and wildlife. Uh, we, we didn't have a lot, you know, like all, they deer hunted and they, now, back in those days, they even squirrel hunted. Everybody went, everybody squirrel hunted. And, uh, and, of course, that's a lost art. And you know what I think, Dale, I hate to say it, but I think quail hunting is going the way that squirrel hunting went. It's, 
I mean, the, the new generations, they've got too many gadgets to deal with. They've got too many strings pulling against their time. And uh, I'm just afraid that they don't, they're not going to, they're not going to feed a bird dog or two all year to quail hunt. They're, they're going to, they're going to do something else. That's what, well, I'm, that's what I'm afraid of. And I'm going to ask you in a minute for your crystal ball, but that, that kind of leads into yeah. it. But you mentioned feeding bird dogs, and I was uh, remiss. You used to be neighbors with my quail hunting buddy, Steve Sherrod, I think when he lived in Austin or whatever. So uh, shout out to Steve. He moved up to Tulsa and kind of left me high and dry down here in Austin. <laughs> but uh, he tells me stories that uh, he knew you from Austin when he lived down there. But horse, most, mostly, uh -huh. I mean, today's generation in Texas, when you mention horse gore, uh, I think uh, professionally, weren't you the whitetail deer program leader for Parks and Wildlife for a good time? Yes, yeah, for about 11 years. Yeah. So that's where a lot of us are going to know you. And uh, again, let's let's talk real briefly about the uh, the trend line for deer and deer hunting and the popularity there versus the trend line for quail and quail hunting and the lack of popularity there. Uh, you got any comments there? I mean, again, you, you hinted that it's it's tough to get kids involved right now. But uh, Well, I've kind of already said, but my, my, my comment on that would be there's going to be more deer hunters and less quail hunters, and I hate, I hate to see that because there's, I mean, there's a lot more quail hunting than sheer quail. There's there's exercise, there's dogs handling, which a lot of people need to learn how to do. If you can handle a dog, you can handle people. And I mean, there's a lot to quail hunting that is desirable, and I wish more people would do it, but I think they're going to end up sitting in the deer blinds. Well, I'm with you. I mean, that that's a bit unfortunate. I guess let me let me ask the question: If if you were in charge, if if you had total control of different things, is there a way to reverse that? Oh, uh, Dale, you want me to say yes, but I can't. <laughs> I can't. I, I don't think I don't think you can reverse it. I tell you what I, I what I do hope. I hope that everybody that likes quail hunt will go quail hunting and and work at it and find find places to hunt. You know, a lot of people, by the way, Dale, we haven't talked about this yet, but you know where 90% of the people live in Texas today? Up and down the inside, inside the city limits. 90%. I, I just looked this up the other day. 90% of the people in Texas today live inside the city limits. So and only 10% live rurally. Well, there's that takes away from your quail hunting right there. Well, I always um, challenge the landowners that I work with. I, I compliment them, but I tell them that the best friend that a quail has is a rancher with a bird dog. And that way they're, <laughs> yeah, they're, think, they're thinking right. about their vocation and their avocation as they make decisions about stocking rate and brush control, uh, yada, yada kind of thing. Um, Horace, uh, you got anything else you'd like to leave us with? Well, I'd like to. I, I, of course, I'm in my old age. I didn't get to go. If I'd have been younger and out on the road, I'd have been down down at uh, 
in South Texas that when you got the award, did they call it, was that a lifetime achievement award or what was that? Uh, that I, I think they call it professional conservationist of the year from that Harvey okay. Wild Sportsman's Club deal. Well, they were late. They were late in that. <laughs> they should have given you that 10 years ago. <laughs> well, anyway, Dale, you've done a good job. Well, I appreciate it. I've had a lot of help. Uh, I always sign my emails with one of Susie's number one point in her 12 point plan for success. And that is always hunt with good dogs. And I, I think, I think you can empathize with that. And we appreciate you sharing your memories and your recollections. Like I said, I look forward to getting a copy of that book when it comes out and uh, hope you keep on trucking. And I look forward to seeing you down the road somewhere so we can share more of these tales about uh, Jack and Mike and, Okay. Timmy McGee and all the ones that, that kept us going back during the 60s and 70s. Hey, Dale, if I owe you anything like money or anything, you better get it pretty quick. <laughs> <laughs> you, don't owe, you don't owe me a thing, Horace. Uh, I, I feel like I've been paid in full and probably got a good tip as well. So, Mighty like, good. Again, thank you for being uh, with us today and uh, for our listeners today. Again, uh, this podcast will be coming out about July 20th uh, within the next month. Uh, August 16th through the 18th, we'll be having the statewide quail symposium there in Abilene. So be sure and get pre-registered for that. Pre-registration ends the end of July. Save you a little money and get your room reservations there at the MCM Elegante Motel. And uh, next month, I'm going to be, uh, my guest will be Dr. Ryan O'Shaughnessy. Dr. O'Shaughnessy is our new executive director at the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation. I know you're going to like him. He's got some great stories. Uh, and he's a bird dog man to the cloth. He feeds 27 bird dogs. So, uh, Horace, I'd love me and you and Ryan to get together. We could spend some good tales, too. <laughs> Dale, I appreciate you. Okay, thank you, Horace. And with that, Gary, we're signing off and to turn it back to you guys in the studio. Again, thanks for y'all's efforts over there, and we'll talk to you next month. Thank you so much, Dr. Dale. Some wonderful memories and insights from you and Horace today. Thank you, Horace, for your lifetime of work and passion for Texas wildlife. We hope you've enjoyed this month's podcast and conversation. For more information about the Dr. Dale on Quail podcast and past episodes, go to the website of the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation at quailresearch.org. I'm Gary Joyner of the Texas Farm Bureau. Thank you for joining us today. Until next time. Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on Quail possible. Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at GordianSons.com.